We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. So the LA Rams will be the number two seed. They finish 13 and 3, a 13 win season for the third time in franchise history. I've been dreaming this my whole life. This don't have you. Yeah. It's time to put in the work. Yeah. Every man gonna dominate. Boys, Offense, defense, special team. Let's go. What are we talking about? Greg Zerline sends the Rams to the Super Bowl. Welcome to Rams Talk Radio. This is Derek C. Paula with Michael Stewart, former Los Angeles Rams defensive back, and of course, Lil Stevie, Steve Ribeiro, joining us for our mega 200th episode of Rams Talk Radio. Wow, guys, can you believe 200 episodes? Steve, you were there from the very beginning. I'm going to go to you first, buddy. How are you feeling? Feeling great, man. Excited to be here on the 200th episode. Uh, I remember when I was recording episodes with Johnny and we were just putting them in a little play button on the website. 
and now we are everywhere where you can get your podcasts. Seriously, it was literally a play button, like a little widget, a little black and white widget, and now it's the real deal. Mike, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, man, and uh, man, I'm just glad to be a part of this great, great milestone in the history of uh, the podcast, and just, just you know, being a newbie, new kid on the block. I'm just glad to be be a part. I'm just feeling like I'm I'm riding in the wagon that you guys are pulling. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm, I just I just had this image in my head of the frontier, <laughs> the pioneers. <laughs> they're on the way. Well, you know, it's kind of weird. We talk that this podcast landed on this date because I just realized it uh, earlier that yesterday was our six year anniversary of being around as a, as a company as a, as a website and here we are now on 200 podcasts we began podcasting full-time in 2017 we test ran it in 2016 and at first it was a widget on the website and then we moved to soundcloud and then we moved housing to spreaker or now we're all over the place and it's really been something neat to watch just our listeners grow the, the way they interact with us, it's been special. And so thank you, folks, for taking the time to listen to all of our shows. And we promise that the best is yet to come. We're going to keep working hard to produce better shows, to bring more personalities to you, and get you more interviews. And today, guess what? we got two great ones, two really great ones. We have former Rams defensive end Grant Wistrom and former head coach Dick Vermeil, both of them part of the Rams Super Bowl team 20 years ago, the 1999 Rams uh, which is the only team in our franchise history to win a Super Bowl. So before we do that, we do also want to ask you to go ahead and, okay, if you haven't subscribed to us on Twitter, gee, why, why am I saying tw- This is not the end of the show. I'm, I'm on something here. Not You're Twitter. frazzled, man. I'm frazzled. Spotify, SoundCloud, Spreaker, all those places you could find us. We're also now on Public Radio. I, I can't think of any podcast place we're not located and if you do find one we're not located please tell us so i can get us there you can also find our podcast listed on clutch points there are partners here they feature an awesome app that puts loads of nba and nfl information at your fingertips you can check them out at clutchpoints.com or at, or download their app and also don't forget again to subscribe to us and leave a nice five-star review on itunes it really helps us out it also helps uh, our other shows as well that includes rampage radio currently on hiatus butting heads with Lil Stevie That's and Johnny, a good one. Rams Uncensored starts with us this week. That's with Matt Herrera and his his crew of uh, well, they, they're called Uncensored for a reason. They're, they're not a family show. And of course, Norm Hightower's new show, which will focus on breaking down film. Okay, so before we get to the interviews, a couple quick things to get to. The first one being the Rams hire. Eric Henderson, former Chargers assistant defensive line coach, to be the defensive line coach. He replaces outgoing coach Bill Johnson, which is kind of a surprise. A guy who's a, a longtime coach in the league, coached 18 years in the NFL, 40 years coaching overall, two years with the Rams. I'm not sure how you guys feel about that. We'll get to that in a second. And then also, Zach Robinson is now on board as the assistant quarterback coach. He is now part of the tandem with Shane Waldron as they now become Jared Goff's fourth, that's right, fourth uh, quarterback coaches in his four years in the league. I'm going to start with Mike on this one. Mike, how are you feeling about the Eric Henderson hiring? 
Well, you know, it's it's always interesting when a veteran coach gets replaced with kind of a younger, what seems to be less experienced coach. So it'll be interesting to see. But there's this thought of the younger guy can relate to this new mentality player, which is always interesting because it's like, okay, we're still playing football. What is the difference in 10 years ago and five years ago to 30 years ago? You got to go hit and tackle. So, But there seems to be a movement to go younger and more relatable with, as they say, the millennial generation, whatever that means. Uh, But it'll be interesting to see. My only thing is, you know, looking at the stats, you know, they were – Ranked ninth defensively, the Chargers were in regards to total defense and things like that, and, and we were, I think, at 19 or something like that. So maybe they just said, hey, we're going to bring this guy in. We got some beef up front that we need to get a fresh fresh sound in the room. Steve? Well, yeah, I think it's I think it's definitely kind of a youth movement here. I think that the Rams have to be high on Eric Henderson for them to make this move. And look, I mean – Bill Johnson had a long career in the NFL. The defensive line, I'd say, for the most part, underperformed this season. And that's with Aaron Donald having quite possibly the greatest interior lineman season of all time, which says a lot about how not great the rest of the line did. But either way, I think this is more about Eric Henderson and less about Bill Johnson making this move. It seems like the team, you know, maybe they see Eric Henderson as a guy who can be the next defensive coordinator. Maybe they see him being the heir apparent to Wade Phillips in that regard. I mean, Wade can't coach forever. I'm sure we all wish he could, but he's not getting younger. You know, a couple years from now, he's going to be 80 years old. And maybe they see Eric Henderson as a guy that can be groomed to take over that position and maybe for a long time after that uh, until he gets poached for a head coaching job. And Zach Robinson, I mean... Congratulations to him. He'll be a head coach within three years. Uh, <laughs> you know, everybody's searching for the next Sean McVay, and maybe the Rams are doing the same thing by hiring a young former quarterback that had his last job working for a football website, commentating on how the Rams are doing. So, yeah, I I don't mind the Zach Robinson hire. Uh, I think it's an interesting out of the box decision uh, by Sean McVay and the staff. And you know, Sean McVay, he's the guy that keeps that offense moving and. Everybody else is just cogs in the wheel. Mike, how do you feel about the Robinson hire? Well, I, I, I think it's uh, it's a ploy for them to probably have one of the uh, coaches' calendars. You know, this is another you know nice looking young man. So maybe they're just going with, <laughs> hey guys, we're going to be the most talented and we're going to be the most looked at guys on this poster. I don't know, but I, I think there has to be something to. Uh, you know, with golf, you know, with the changes. But, again, it's a younger guy, and obviously they either know or see something. Uh, but he's done some time with the Patriots, right? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. so the thing is, uh, you know, everyone's looking at, you know, a training ground. Back in my financial advisor days, if you got trained by uh, IDS as it was then, now Ameriprise, uh anyone was looking to pick those financial advisors because they felt they had the best training at the time. So maybe this is a guy who's, you know, kind of off this Belichick tree. And obviously he's been around a little bit of Tom Brady. 
So maybe they feel he has some seasoning, even though he's young. And again, what we would see is inexperienced overall. Well, interesting. He he was a, a a quarterback coach, not a quarterback coach. He played quarterback in college. He played a little bit with, the, with the Patriots. He pro football focus analyst there. Also quarterback consultant. That's what I was, that's what I was trying to spit out. And so it's not like he's just some random dude sitting behind his desk at home with a cat in his lap and not doing anything really football-related. He's been involved in the game. It's just interesting that that's where they went, and I hope it works. Mike Cahill, the pro football-focused guy for the Rams, really um, was highly praising Robinson on Twitter the other day and even said to watch what Jared Goff does this year. So we'll take his word for it, I guess. And, you know, I, I got to go for it. I got to think with Sean McVay there, like Steve's saying, it's not going to matter. It's it's really Sean McVay's team. So, there you go. All right, guys. We are going to move on here. Before we do, we want to give a shout-out to our sponsor, Jim Hawk. His amazing book, Hollywood Scene, Grit, Glamour, and the 1950s Los Angeles Rams. Tell the story of the 1950s Rams through the lens of Jim's dad, John, who was an offensive lineman for the team from 1953 to 1957. Check out the story of his father and a team he played for an era of glitz, glamour, and future Hall of Famers. Read about players like Norm Van Brocklin, Elroy Presley, Hurst, Tom Fears, and Les Richter in the story of spanning the 1950s Los Angeles Rams. You can find Hawk's book online at hollywoodsteam.com and on Twitter at hollywoodsteam. It's also available in both hardback and electronic form and on Amazon and on barnesandnoble.com. All right, folks, all proceeds, this is important, all proceeds go to help Homeboy Industries, a charity in Los Angeles, helping, helping people get out of gang life. Get them away from gangs and gain them into, you know, opportunities. Get them opportunities to grow and become positive in society. So there you go, Homeboy Industries, Jim Hawk's book, Hollywood's team. Go for it, and it's well worth your time. Okay, so here we go, guys. A couple of things to tell you about the Grant Wistrom interview. With Grant Wistrom's interview, there are a couple of little issues with the tape, so you'll hear a couple of clicks there. Uh, we had some bad weather here where I am. And so when he's talking, he'll talk about Mike March and what he's trying to emphasize with March is that he was a genius on you know, as, as a coach and um, how important he was at 919. And also when talking about Worcester Wednesdays, he is describing the trend on Twitter every Wednesday where people tell stories about him like he's Chuck Norris, basically. It's really funny. Um, go ahead and check out this whole interview. It has a little sad moments towards the end. But overall, it's a great listen, and, in the, and well, it's like I've been saying about Jim Hawk's book, it's well worth your time. All right, folks, I am here with the Rams' 1998 first-round draft to Grant Wistrom. Grant, welcome to the show. Well, what's going on, Derek? How are you today? I'm doing well. I'm pretty thrilled to finally get you on the show. It's been a long time coming for us. And it's it's also a special year. We are entering the 1999 anniversary of 20 years this year. Can you believe it's been that long? No, it's been a long <laughs> No, I can't believe it's been that long. My kids <laughs> like to remind me about how old I am, how old I am, but I don't ever, I don't feel that old. Well, no, well, you live life like you're that, that old still. You know, you know, the 21, 22-year-old guy. And, you know, I cannot believe how much energy you still run around with. Ah. Uh... But I get to go to sleep pretty early at night. I'm on that old man schedule, early to bed, <laughs> early to rise. 
<laughs> so I do just want to ask you a few questions about, you know, where your life has been since retiring from the NFL, about the whole draft process going the Rams. And of course, we can't, we can't ignore the Super Bowl year, right? And no, no. <laughs> of course not. So I guess first I want to ask you, what was the whole process for you like getting drafted in the NFL? Uh, you know, it, it was a pretty, pretty good, easy transition for me. I mean, going to the NFL wasn't easy, but the whole draft process, you know, luckily I, I was, uh, I signed with a good agency. Uh, it was IMG at the time, their CAA. Um, they're one of the larger agencies. Um, I was very well versed on what was coming at me. Um, very well prepared. I mean, as soon as I was done with the uh, fall semester my senior year, so right after the football season, I moved down to Florida and uh, trained at the Voluntary Academy, which uh, IMG owned. And uh, really got my head on straight to be able to go to the combine and test out well. You know, and from that point on, it was just waiting game. Um, I re- actually, I really didn't do any workouts at the combine. I kind of tweaked my. I wasn't ready to run at the combine. I put on probably 20 pounds in about a month because the rap on me was that I was undersized for the end. So for a month, all I did was eat, sleep, and lift weights and loaded to the gills on creatine and uh, was able to put on about 20 pounds in a month. And so there was a learning process about how to re- how to adjust and move with that new weight that I put on. So I really wasn't comfortable testing out at the combine. So I told them I'd tweak my hamstring a little bit and got out of it there. So after that, they came to Lincoln, Nebraska for the pro day, and I tested out well there. And from that point on, it was just a waiting game. You know, every now and then you'd, a team would want to fly you in and sit down and talk to you. And, but for the most part, it's just, all right, now let's just sit around and wait for the draft. Well, how common is that? You mentioned something I've rarely heard, and that was saying, I'm not ready for this this at the combine. So I told them I had a, you know, a little bit of a tweet hamstring. How common is that with players adjusting to the NFL? I think it, for me, I knew I was going to be a first-round draft pick, so it really wasn't a gamble. I... I wasn't ready to test, and I certainly didn't want to put anything out there that wasn't less than my best. So that for me, and I think it happens more often than, than you're aware of, because, you know, guys will test at the combine, and that's great, but they'll probably usually test again at their senior day at their school, too, unless they just blow it out of the water at the combine. So for me, um, you know, my resume, there was plenty of film on me, um, and I'm not a numbers guy. You know, I'm not going to bench press the world. I'm not going to, you know, set any lane speed records running. So I'm an effort guy, and my, my resume is on film. So I felt kind of secure skipping that stuff, but also knowing that I was going to do it again for him later. So which team expressed interest in you leading up to the draft? Well, I knew Coach Vermeil liked me. Uh I knew that uh, he was fond of how I played football. He had commentated a few of our games you know, about the year or two prior uh, when he was uh, doing color or college football, TV, <laughs> whatever. And uh, I knew he was very high on me, and they chose they picked pretty high that year. So I knew there was a chance there. But the Dallas Cowboys actually chose, I think, eighth that year. And they called – they had a – I was in Web City with – right outside of Joplin, which is right outside of nowhere. And uh, they actually had a private plane waiting at the Joplin airport for me for the next day and uh, to get ready to fly down to Dallas. And they called the night before the draft, and um, they asked, you know, hey, we think that St. Louis might take you at the sixth pick. Is there any way you'll tell them not to draft you? 
And at that time, I mean, St. Louis was the worst team in the dec- like previous decade. Yeah. And the Dallas Cowboys were America's team, so I'd have given anything to have gone to Dallas. Uh, that's not – I'm not the type of guy that – I don't think I'm better than anybody else. I certainly don't think I would ever have the right to tell somebody not to choose me. And then on the off chance that the Rams still choose you now, and the word gets out that you ask them not to draft you, now you're already pretty soured going into that city. So it was certainly, you know, at the time it would have been awesome to say, yeah, I want to go to Dallas if I could play there. Um, but uh, everything happens for a reason. And um, you know, I kept my mouth didn't call St. Louis because that's the right way to handle things. And uh, went there knowing that it wasn't the best situation, but knowing that I was going to make the best out of the situation. Uh, this team was a team that had been really bad for really long. And, you know, they just come through a move from L.A. to St. Louis. It was a shot in the dark to even expect what would happen in 1999. But did you see signs leading up to it in 98 that this could be something special in brewing? Mm, no. I, you know, I, to say that would be a lie. Because, you know, in, in 98, we're dog crap. You know, we're 4-12. and 12. Um, Players are talking about, not walking out to practice and all these things. So, no, there was nothing good about the 98 season, I don't think. The only thing that was good about the 98 season, it gave Coach Vermeil one more year to weed out the people that didn't want to buy in. Uh, and then after that, you know, it gave Kurt a chance to develop. Well, the only, so you get a chance with Coach Vermeil to eliminate some of the detractors. But then also we saw what Kurt could be in practice every day lighting us up. You know, obviously at that point, though, you don't draft Torrey Hole. You haven't traded for Marshall Falk. So the pieces aren't all there yet. So to say that we thought we were going to be amazing and go for the Super Bowl the next year would just be a blatant lie. So you mentioned Coach Romeo winning players out. And what was the team's overall attitude? Because he definitely brought something new to that Rams franchise when he, when he was hired. What was the yeah. overall attitude towards him? Especially in 1999. That was my rookie year in 98. And uh, I remember having to report early to training camp. And I'm in um, a whatever cafeteria after practice. And the NFL Films crew was there. And one of the guys is behind me in line. And he's like, hey, do you guys practice like this every day? And I go, ah, man, I don't know. This is my first year here. Actually, this is my second day. So, but... Both days have been this hard, yeah. And they're like, I'm like, how's this compared to other places? He's like, we've never seen anything like this. So, like, Coach Vermeil had a plan. You know, get rid of the guys that don't want to buy. Get rid of the guys that don't want to work. Get rid of the guys that aren't mentally tough enough. You know, in the fourth quarter when it's crunch time, these guys don't have the wherewithal to pick themselves up play after play after play after getting hit in the mouth and just keep swinging and keep coming after people. So that that was a big deal for him, is just weeding those guys out. And I'm I'm sorry, Derek. I'm not sure if I completely addressed the question. I kind of started rambling there. No, that, that was actually you did, and that's weird because we're going to be talking to Coach Vermil here soon. We we already have an appointment with him, and those are some of the questions that are coming up in my head. Is in '97, '98, all kinds of thoughts about can Coach Vermil do it. You guys come in there, that, that 98, 99 class, of course you get Falk, and all of a sudden this team is amazing. Yeah, and I mean, let's not forget Mike Marks in the mix mm-hmm. too, pulling the strings. I mean, for him to have all those weapons at his disposal, I cannot imagine being a defensive coordinator trying to match up against that. 
and that's what Mark Polder said to us when we talked to him as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's just, he is a genius. I mean, he's, you know, uh, people that are incredibly intelligent are sometimes hard to get along with. I had a great relationship with Coach Marks. Um, I know some guys didn't. I know the organization ended up falling out of them, but the guy was a freaking genius. Say what you will about any other aspect of him. He is an incredible football mastermind. The, now, and branching all in, the offense is, is being masterminded by Coach Martz. You're entering your second year. So the defense has been decent for a while, waiting for the offense to catch up. And then Trent Green goes down. And now you have Kurt Warner stepping in. What were your expectations at that point? Realistically, realistically, you're like, oh crap, here we go again. You know, you, you can you, because that whole preseason we were just rolling and looking amazing, and then all of a sudden Trent goes down. You're like, oh, here comes that good Rams luck again. Um, and to you know, nobody, you saw Kurt at practice every day and knew that he was special, but nobody obviously anticipated a Hall of Fame career out of the guy from watching him on the practice field for one season. So that that year now. 1999. I remember I was I was in the I was in the Navy at the time, yeah. and I was I I can tell you I was out to sea. I was deployed on on operations during the Super Bowl. Okay, yeah. and I listened to your championship game via a Navy receiver on the radio. That's I was, awesome. All right. So these are very special memories that this conversation brings back. And that season itself was for a guy who'd been watching the Rams just be horrible for all these years. What well, meant so much, it still means a lot. Yeah. So now, how twenty years later, how does it feel to have been a part of that? I mean, you know what? <clears throat> Amazing. You, you, I had a chance to play with guys like Aeneas Williams that played in the NFL twenty plus years and never won a Super Bowl, and here I get to play and win one my second year. And then you almost think, like, this is easy. We'll do this every year. And I made it back to two more and never won another one. And you can't compare the high of winning. There, there are no two more greater distances than the high of winning the Super Bowl and the low of losing the Super Bowl. So uh, it was just amazing to be able to be a part of one. The toughness that Coach Vermeil brought you guys, you know, in terms of weeding out the ones who didn't want to be there, you go to the Super Bowl, you're up 16 nothing. Tennessee is resilient. They come back, and you guys still pulled out in the end. Was that to you know the ultimate culmination of all the work he put you guys through? Was it as hard as it was watching it on TV that last quarter? Yeah, it, it was. I, I actually, I don't, I never took myself out of game. At that point in the game, I didn't even have 100% of 60% to give anymore. My ass was dragging. So we were worn out. They were, they were putting it to us in the second half, at least defensively. And I can't speak from the offensive side of the ball, but on defense, we, they were just pounding it down our throats and making us like it. So I actually removed myself uh, and let Leonard come and had Leonard come in because I got to a passing situation. So I was in on the field for the last couple of plays. But, I mean, that's what he was setting us up for is winning the game in the fourth quarter when the game is on the line. And then it, it, then you have, when you practice that hard and that intense, you have extra to reach down and grab. And Derek, you know, being in the military, it's mm-hmm. it's something you train for. And to, you train to be in the most hostile conditions and the worst conditions and if you practice in those conditions you can play in those conditions and that's what he was conditioning us to do and that last tackle of course 
just inches away. That moment that happened, how did it feel to, to know it's over? Your Super Bowl champions, the Rams. Uh, that's the marriage and the birth of my two children. I mean, that's the happiest moment of my life. Um, yeah, just I've played football since I was seven years old. God put me on this earth to play football. I know that. I, I've known that since I was a little kid. And I didn't know that I would get to play in the NFL, but I knew that that was something with inside of me needed to play football. And to be able to go out and play on the biggest stage of the thing that I've been gifted to do and have a chance to win it uh, is just mind-blowing. And you were effective throughout your entire career, whether it was in St. Louis or Seattle, and you played some great football. What were some other meaningful moments for you? It's hard to recall like special moments. They don't stand out to me like they did in college. College, I can think of particular moments where I, I took the time to soak it in. You know, I, I guess you know what the Super Bowl parade. I will never forget. Um, that was amazing. The number of people that came out and the fun that we had. That was awesome. Um, I got to judge a Miss USA pageant a couple of weeks later. That was amazing. You know, just being out there, on this, just getting those opportunities, affording those opportunities was incredible. But you know, I, the Tampa Bay game that year was a really big game. Uh, I still remember that game. Uh, the Philadelphia game, the playoff game, I think it might have been two years later. I don't I don't think it was that year. 2001, but, yeah. Yeah, you know, that was a really big game. I remember having some big plays in that game. Um, and you know, the Super Bowls stick with me, but I, I gotta tell you, I don't go back and I don't watch a lot. I don't watch any games. Um, so just particular plays don't stand out, but just, just feelings and emotions do about just time, the time, time, time that I spent at certain places, guys that I got to be around. Um, it was more for me, I have more off the field of football around my football career than I do on the field. That's kind of where it's taking me this conversation here. And you retired early, age 30. Why did you leave the game? Um, it wasn't fun anymore. You know, and it, it, I always told myself, like I said, I know I was meant to play football because it was fun and I loved it and I was good at it and I needed it in my life. But I promised myself that whenever it stops being fun and it becomes a job, I'm done. And it stopped being fun. Probably, I mean, about my last year in St. Louis, um, I was ready to be done then. And, uh, you know, my agent called and talked to me. My financial advisor called and talked to me and convinced me that I was a big idiot if I didn't, you know, sign another contract. So and it was still fun. It was just a different different kind of fun. And uh, But when you're driving to the stadium on Sunday and you're thinking to yourself, it's no longer a home, man. I get to go play football. It becomes, oh man, I have to go play today. Then you're in the wrong job. It's too hard. It's too demanding. It's too, there's too much pressure to not have an absolute ball when you're out there on the field. So it had quit being fun and I had gotten to the point in my career where I felt like I was being held together with duct tape and bailing twine. And I was spending more time, I was spending every free moment that I have or had in the training room just so I could go back out and get my ass handed to me again on Sunday and feel just as bad on Monday. And taking, honestly, 20 minutes to get out of bed on a Monday morning. And I had such bad pain or fresh guidance, I couldn't hardly walk across the floor to get to the rest mm -hmm. in the morning. I mean, it was a process. And I, I had, at that point, 
relatively I was healthy. My knees were still in great shape. I was coming off a season where you know I hadn't had any real injuries. I could have signed with other teams. St. Louis didn't need the money. And if I wanted to go somewhere, I wanted to go somewhere where we would be competitive and win. Football's too hard to play when you're not winning. And it was, St. Louis wasn't in that situation at the time. And that was really the only team that actively reached out to me. I think there probably would have been other teams had I kind of thrown my my hat into the ring, my name into whatever name into the hat. But uh, when I retired or when I was released from Seattle, I said I was done. So I don't know if any teams kind of backed off of me from that point or not. I don't know. Probably wouldn't have played anymore anyway. Um, and I was just ready to be done, ready to come home, get back to the Midwest. I loved and. You know, I hadn't had a fall in 16 years between the uh, 15 years between the NFL and college, so I was ready to start hunting again, being around my family, being around my brothers, and that wasn't going to happen uh, if I continued to play football. What took the fun out of it? Was it like the business like you're talking about? Was it just missing home? Was it just a desire to move on? Yeah, you know, I think it was all it, it, the passion wasn't there, so it was time to move on. But it was a combination of all those things. Um, and, and just probably it's just a combination of all those things, the pressure, how my body felt. I'd say between the pressure and how my body felt on a daily basis was what kind of drove me out of football. That took the fun out of driving to the stadium on Sundays, you know, like, oh, all right, I'm ready to do this. You know, there, that wasn't there anymore. Um, so it just like I said, it, I, when it wasn't fun anymore, it was time to be done. Well, a couple, just a couple more questions here. Can you explain yeah. to me Worcester Wednesdays on Twitter, please? I, you know what? Uh, most nights on Wednesday, my daughter and I sit, end up sitting on the couch together uh, just reading the absurdities that come <laughs> out. They're, they're pretty awesome, man. Uh, there's some really, really creative people out there. I was just thinking, man, this is Chuck, this is Chuck Knox part two. Oh, it's awesome. <laughs> I love it. There's some good people out there, man. So, folks, when you get a chance, check out check – out uh, Grant's Twitter feed for some of the uh, best Wistrom two what was Wistrom Wednesdays. Okay, finally, years later now, what, what does it mean to you to have been a Ram, and do you still follow the team today? Um, it's hard for me to follow them, Derek. I'll be honest. Um, I don't mind that they left. You know, I understand there's more money in LA than there is in St. Louis. I get that. Um, my problem is I'm too ingrained in Missouri. I'm more I'm more Missouri than I am St. Louis Ram. In fact that they the organization knew they were moving about four or five years. As soon as Mr. Cronkey got the team, I believe he had plans to take him to LA. So as soon as Mr. Cronkey got the team, in my heart I believe they knew they were going to LA. Instead of just saying, Hey guys, it's been really fun here, but we're taking the team to LA, they drug it out for I don't know, two, three, four years. And cost the state of Missouri money in stadium studies. Worked us long, leading to believe that there was a chance that if we build a better stadium, if we fund the right studies, if we do the right things and check all the boxes, that they'd stay. And they knew damn good and well they weren't staying. So I, uh, I'm not really a Rams fan anymore. I was cheering for them in the Super Bowl because I absolutely hate the Patriots. <laughs> I respect them, but I hate them. And uh, I'm a big uh, Indomitian Sioux fan. But uh, other than that, I didn't really care if they won, and I don't really cheer for them. Well, I'm sorry to hear that part. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. You know, and, and, and it hurts me to say it too, but 
because I, I I wanted to play when I got drafted there. I wanted to play my entire career there. I did not want to leave, and it, it sucks that I left. And it wasn't, you know, what and how that all went down. They essentially just threw a contract out on the table and said, "This is what we have to offer. You or Adam Timmerman can sign it." I mean, that's essentially what the conversation was. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it was Adam took it, and you know, I'm glad for Adam. That was awesome. And they uh, they just said there wasn't room left for me anymore. And that was after my fifth year, and so going into my sixth year, I played had a pretty damn good year, and then at that point, they certainly couldn't afford me anymore, and you know they probably didn't want to, and but it stinks, man. I wanted to play my whole career in Missouri, in St. Louis, uh, and be be a franchise sort of guy, and you know that wasn't able to happen, and I'm okay with that, but I'm a Missouri guy more than I'm a Ram, and I don't like how they treated us. Well, it was a it was a horrible situation overall, you know, and. And St. Louis was in a tough position too because the poison pill in that in that lease was, you know, the, the top quarter of the league had to they, that's yeah. what it had to be, and there was no way that was going to happen. And so, yeah. you know, it, it just St. Louis is a bad position. And I look back and I go, dang, John Shaw of all the people who was responsible, you look at John Shaw and go, man, he put that poison pill in that lease. Yeah. And um, you know, I was one when. When the team was getting ready to move, I, I had written about it in Yahoo, and I, at first I was I was against the move. I did I was like, this franchise has moved three times. Let's not do this again. Um, and eventually I came around because I understood that it was financially more viable for keeping the team in a, in a place like Los Angeles. And yeah. it doesn't mean I feel any. It doesn't mean I feel, you know, giddy over the team leaving St. Louis. I went to games in St. Louis. I enjoyed watching you guys play in St. Louis. I enjoyed. I, I actually liked the dome, you know, and and yeah, so I did too. Um, to to see the team leave and, and the the pain it caused is not something that we, you know, we 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 were a site that was open when the team was in St. Louis. We didn't just pop open when the team moved to L.A. So we we covered the Rams, and we have a lot of people on our staff who mostly are L.A. fans, and we still have some leftovers who are who are St. Louis fans, and and it's, it was tough to see the pain it caused. And I hope one day St. Louis gets a team again. Yeah, it'd be, I don't. I'll be honest. I don't see that happening. It'd be nice if it did, but um, I don't know. I just don't see it happening, unfortunately. Well, hey, I, I want to thank you for all the time you spent with us today, and just talking about your life and your career. And you know, we are thankful for the time you played in this team, and we are thankful for the, uh, the what you put in the field. I know it physically it did some damage over the years, and you know, to help bring it bring this franchise to the Super Bowl means a lot. Oh man, I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Six years of my life, absolutely. I loved it there, and like I said, it truly. When I signed the contract in Seattle, it was one of the happiest days of my life, but also one of the most painful, too, because I really wanted to play my entire career at St. Louis. But God has a plan, and he had a different plan for me that day. And uh, my family and my life would have changed completely, I think, had I stayed in St. Louis. So sometimes uh, our best best prayers are the ones left unanswered. Well, still, I'm the last man. I, I mean, I, sorry that it had to happen that way. Wish it, we oh, wish you. We, I wasn't happy when you when you assigned. I was. I wanted you to stay in St. Louis. I was not happy at all, and the team didn't keep you. And um, you know, that's unfortunately that's what the game is. It's a business now, and yep. sometimes people have to go. And sometimes you know the people you you don't want to see go are the ones that go, and that's going to happen again this this offseason with Rams and many other teams across the league. So, yeah. Grant, where can people follow you on Twitter and keep track of Wistrom Wednesdays? 
Uh, actually, if you go to just uh, my handles at Grant Wistrom on Twitter, and the, it's just hashtag Wistrom Wednesday, Wednesdays. Uh, there's always some good stuff on there, man. It's always funny. All right. Well, hey, thank you so much for taking the time to, to spend with us, and well, take it easy. Thanks a lot, Derek. You too, man. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right. So there's the interview with Grant Wistrom, guys. That was a tough one at the end there, hearing describe how he feels about the Rams and how he's no longer really a fan because of what happened. There's a whole thing against him. It's the only thing it's the team for leaving financially, but he does feel, you know, hurt by it and no longer considers himself a Rams fan. You know, both of you guys and one way or the other, Steve, you were a fan of the team there in St. Louis, and of course, Mike, you grew up being a Rams fan and you were a part of the team right before they left for St. Louis. Each of you have your own perspectives on relocation. Steve, I'll start with you. You know, how are you feeling about, you know, his words and what he had to say? Yeah, I think he kind of nailed what I'm sure most people that live in St. Louis in the area felt about the move. I think, yeah, it's a tough situation. And Kroenke, I think, long-term, probably made the best decision for the franchise, both financially and from a perspective of getting players as a team and whatnot. But it still it still felt off when the whole process was happening. We kind of felt like we knew the team was going to L.A. for a couple of years uh, it seemed like the writing was on the wall, but uh, Kroenke insisted that they were going to do everything they could to stay in St. Louis, which is bullshit. Let's be honest. They didn't. They did not do everything they could to stay in St. Louis. And I think that is what left a sour taste in Grant's mouth, and I'm sure a lot of people. And you know, for that reason, I can't really fault him for not following the team back to L.A. You know, I appreciate all the fans that came with us from St. Louis, but for the ones that stayed stayed in LA and or sorry the ones that stayed in St. Louis and chose not to follow the team it's hard to blame them it was kind of an, a it it wasn't the best most graceful exit from St. Louis and I think I really never thought Kroenke had any intention of keeping the team there for those last couple of years and you no know, for that reason I I don't blame the fans that didn't want to keep continue to follow the team Mike Yeah, I, I definitely, you know, have some experience with team moving. I was with the team in 93 a year before they left in 94. And and some things you could kind of see were a little bit writings on the wall. Uh, but the tough thing that gets maybe overlooked a little bit are, you know, you have families involved. I mean, at the time we had people with the, the team who had been there, you know, 20, 25 years Uh and doing some different things and you know now you're like okay we're going to move to st louis so some went a lot of them didn't and i'm sure it was the same with st louis with the move back you know some came some didn't because from my understanding you know knowing some people that are still with the organization you know you kind of didn't have a lot of time to make a decision and it was either you were rolling or you weren't because when they said it was time to go, they were rolling. So it's just kind of a sad situation because I know when they went to St. Louis, everybody here in L.A. was like, man, it's just kind of for the money. And it seems the same coming back. You know, there's a money emphasis on it, and the fans and the families seem to get left out. You know, so I agree a little bit with Steve. You know, yes, maybe long term from a financial business perspective, 
it's going to be a great move for for Mr. Kroenke and and the rest of the organization. But you know, there is something in translation that the fans get left out, and as we can see, even players and fans can become a little you know disjointed and bitter because you're spending your hard-earned dollars dollars to support uh, your team and then you don't really have any control over anything at the end of the day so tough situation but all in all i'm gonna say i'm happy they're back in la and you know i understand what grant's saying i do think and this is just a polite disagree with him and maybe even you a little bit steve i do think that it's how do I say this? It's not so cut and dry as simply saying, you know, why didn't they say, just tell St. Louis they're leaving? They couldn't. They couldn't tell them that because they'd be violating NFL guidelines at that point, the relocation guidelines, that they're purposely trying to muck it up and, you know, just make it all a big mess so that they can leave, then, you know, that's, that's a violation. So they had to have good faith negotiations. And, and for them, the Rams, the definition of good faith negotiations was to follow the lease, follow the process of the lease, follow arbitration, make the case to arbitration. And that's what the Rams did. And it worked. Does, it, does that mean that they weren't, you know, that it's purely accidental they got to go? No. I think they knew St. Louis couldn't pay up. I think they knew St. Louis, and the, this is the problem St. Louis did. I think St. Louis failed between 2004 and 2014 to properly plan to upgrade that stadium. And in the end, because that, again, because of that poison pill in the lease that required the team to be playing in a stadium that was in the top one quarter of all NFL stadiums. So with all that in mind, the Rams just followed the process and got to leave. That's all it was. And it doesn't make it clean. It doesn't make it perfect. It's a really horrible thing that St. Louis fans had to, had to experience it now twice in their lifetime, losing the Cardinals and then the Rams. And I feel for them. I do. If, you know, just like we felt for the L.A. fans when the team left L.A. It's just, you know, sometimes business, sometimes the business comes ahead of the personal. I don't think Stanley Kroenke felt good personally about burning his home state. I mean, I don't think he did at all. But... I'm a business owner, Mike, you're a business owner. I sometimes the the, the welfare of your business comes first. The the value your the, your business financial future comes first and that's the financial decision he had to make and it stinks that people had to get burned in the process. It really does. Well, no doubt. I mean, at the end of the day, the idea is these guys who own these teams, you know, they're big time businessmen outside of it. So at the end of the day, yes, they're going to do what's in the best interest ultimately of their bottom line. And if they see another opportunity where their bottom line can be improved and, and maybe that also helps improve the lives of those who are employed by that organization, then in that sense, it looks like a win-win situation. Unfortunately, because fans who are, you know, pretty much normal by most standards are working, you know, you buy a season ticket or you save up, you know, you're spending hard earned dollars to quote unquote, be a fan and be there in the stadium and feel the action and all those things. And when that's just kind of taken away from you without you having any control, 
I definitely can see how it leaves a, a sour taste in your mouth. But yes, ultimately, you know, as they say in our business school, business is business and, you know, location, location, location. So maybe it came down to L.A. was a better location at this time. Steve, any final thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, my personal feelings are I think going to L.A. was probably the right move um, for a, a variety of reasons. But it, it still sucks for the fans that got left high and dry in St. Louis. You know, they they were in St. Louis for 20 years. How many of those years were the team good? Like five out of 20? I mean, yeah, they were blessed with the Super Bowl win, which many franchises haven't even had. But for for the Rams fans in St. Louis, for the last 10 years we were there, they were bad every year. There was a couple years where they were okay. But they never had a winning record during those years. And it's tough to ask the fans to come out every week and support the team. And a lot of them did still come out, but... You know, they, they got a bad product, and I, I don't blame them for not spending their hard-earned money every week to go see the team. And here we are. It's I think the team's in a better place now, but uh, it's, a lot of people uh, got spurned in the process. So, and also one more thing here, just, just to put to bed, because I keep seeing this on social media. Whenever somebody wants to trash talk the Rams, one of the first thing they say is, you'll hear them say it, is, well, that team's going to be gone anyways. They're, they're leaving. They, they just don't stay anywhere. They're going to leave. they go to London in five years. They'll be in Oakland in, in two years. Folks, this team is not going anywhere now. They're not moving again. They are going to be stuck there for a long time and stuck in a good way, stuck in a good way because of the Inglewood Project where it's you know the, the epitome of state-of-the-art across the board. This Rams team is not moving again for probably ever. Okay, so let's go ahead and end that joke now. All right, so next up on the docket, we have our interview with Dick Vermeil, the Super Bowl winning head coach of the Rams in 1999. Before I get to this interview, I'm going to ask each of you one thing. What was your best memory from that season? I'm going to start with you, Mike. Well, just the fact that the way it all culminated in and how they all just came together, especially down the stretch. And it was just great to see a coach like Dick Vermeil, who I remember watching uh, when he was coaching the Philadelphia Eagles when I was growing up, and just how he seemed to really uh, get along and relate to his players. And then to come to the Rams and to be able to, what would be considered his latter years, to be able to, go back in the genie bottle and and bring out whatever he needed to get that team through there. Uh, it was just awesome to see. Steve, your thoughts? Yeah, I was five years old during that season. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my favorite looking back at the season that I don't remember watching memory was definitely the tackle. I mean, how could it not be? Uh, it was – an incredible it's if the Rams don't have that season in 99 that decade of the 90s for the Rams is probably the worst decade of any team in the history of sports and for it to go eight years of just absolute garbage way worse than the Fisher era for them to just win a title at the end of that year it says a lot about everybody involved with that 99 team whether that's Warner whether that's Vermeil. Falk, Bruce, the, the whole group, and it's just 
Uh, it's crazy, and I think we'll owe Vermeil forever for get, getting that team to the promised land. All right, folks, with that in mind, here we go. Here's our interview with Dick Vermeil. All right, folks, this is Derek C. Paul here with Dick Vermeil, the former coach of the St. Louis Rams, um, was also, in case you didn't know, started his coaching career with the Los Angeles Rams. Coach, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, I am. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And, and how have you been doing in retirement? Well, you know, I'm busy. You know, re- retirement doesn't from coaching, yeah, but I'm doing a lot of things. You know, I'm in the wine business, mm-hmm. and that requires a lot of effort, a lot of time, and those kinds of things. But uh, we're, we're doing fine, yeah. And uh, and you mentioned your the wine business, Vermeil Wines. Can you tell folks about that? <laughs> well, you know, I was born and raised in the Napa Valley, Calistoga, at the north end. And mm-hmm. uh, I grew up helping my grandfather Vermeil make his wines for the family, grapes coming from the Freddie Annie Vineyard, which my great-grandfather on the Italian side of my family owned part of it at one time. And I just I never lost the interest. So in 1999, a friend of mine in the winery business uh, made the first Jean-Louis Vermeil Cabernet, my dad's name, J-E-N-L-O-U-I-S, Vermeil, and my great-grandfather's name, made about 150 to 100 cases of Jean-Louis Vermeil wine and sold it out of his winery. And I didn't have any money involved, nor did any friends, uh, but we just, it was going to be a hobby. And we did that hobby all the way until 2008, then we turned the hobby into a business, put some money in it, turned it into a business, and we're now making about 2,800 cases of wine. And what is special about your wine in particular? What, what, is, what really sets it apart? Well, you know, we're known for our very good Cabernets. You know, it's, our winemaker is really the is really the top winemaker in the Napa Valley. His name is Thomas Brown. You can check him out. Mm-hmm. He's produced many 100-rated caliber red wines for people. And... Uh, but we don't own a winery. We custom crush at Tambor Bay in Calistoga. We don't own the vineyard. But as I said, my great-grandfather owned part of it a long time ago. But the Freddie Annie family's owned it for over 100 years, and I've been affiliated with them all my life. Mm-hmm. So our grapes come from there. And uh, Freddie Annie's are like family with me. And, in fact, the Freddie Annie mother was my babysitter when I was born 82 years ago. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, we, we, I... I I probably shouldn't do it, but sometimes I act like I own it, you know. <laughs> but, uh, no, we're doing well, you know. And we're, you know, 2019, we're going into our 11th year in business, and sooner or later we're going to break even. <laughs> well, going back in time, like I mentioned earlier, many, many of the younger Rams fans don't know that your coaching career began with the Rams in 1969 under George Allen. What right. did you learn about the coaching game from Allen? Well, you know, I came out of Stanford University, and I came to the Rams in 99. Uh, I came out of Stanford University as an assistant offensive football coach, came to the Rams in, uh, in uh, 1969 as the first special teams coach ever in the National Football League. And uh, I learned a lot about detail. I learned about uh, pulling NFL players together as a family. I learned uh, to respect age at positions. Mm-hmm. Never assume a guy that is so old can't play well yet at that age. 
which George Allen was notorious for being able to keep the older plays, players playing and playing well. Uh, you know, I, I, I learned the detail and preparation, the work ethic and everything uh, was, you know, on the pro level, which I had never seen. And, and I think George Allen was sort of a forerunner. I, I learned from George the importance of uh, being sound on defense first, his philosophy, uh, they, they can't score, they can't beat you, you know. And, uh, he, he, you know, I, I, a lot of little tiny things that you learn from George. And uh, uh, always, always, always uh, admired him, remained a good friend of his. He used to come to my Eagles training camp when I was a head coach there mm-hmm. uh, and watch after he was out of coaching the Rams there. So, you know, I, I have great fond memories and I learned a lot from him and also the other people on the staff. You know, Ted Marshall Broda, great offensive coach, Ray Prohaska, offensive line coach, Ray Malavasi, mm-hmm. defensive uh, coach, Kurt, uh, Tom Catlin. I learned so much from all these really older, experienced, longtime NFL football coaches. And I don't think I could write it all down in one book. And you left the Rams, though, after one year, but you came back as an assistant under Tommy Prothrow and then later under, under Chuck, Chuck Knox, given right. the struggles that Prothrow had during his two seasons, the impact Coach Knox made in Los Angeles, what impact did those years with the Rams have on your coaching career? Well, first off, I think Tommy, you know, I was the, I left the Rams in 69 to go be the offensive coordinator at UCLA because I wanted to coach offensive football. And I always respected Tommy Prothrow, having coached against mm-hmm. him for four years as a Stanford assistant coach. I always admired how well his team played and how well they were coached and, and how well they played based on the level of talent that they had. They always played beyond their level of talent. Mm-hmm. And I left the Rams, not out of disrespect for them, out of respect of finding out how you take kids and make them better than they really are. Okay, And I thought I could learn that from Pro Throw. And lo and behold, I get there. Uh, George Allen gets fired, and they hire Tommy Pro Throw to come to the Rams. So I go back with him as his offensive coordinator. And if the truth be known, uh, I was probably part of the reason Tommy got fired, because I, I was his offensive coordinator, and I wasn't far along enough in my career from the NFL standpoint, to probably really be a quality offensive uh, coordinator at that time, you know, and he hadn't been in pro football, so he wasn't really that familiar with the pro game. And we played, you know, we ran the hell out of the ball. We won. I think we might have been the best running team in the NFL at that time, but the passing game wasn't up to par. And I've always sort of blamed myself for that. Mm-hmm. Of course, at your that age, you always think you know everything, but as I'm looking back on it now, recognizing how little I knew but how much I thought I knew, you know. <laughs> but anyway, I've always, the time really respected Tommy Prothrow. And uh, I enjoyed my times with him. And then he got fired, and the Rams asked me to stay on the staff. And uh, Chuck Knox came, and I got to stay there and coach with Chuck one there. And all, lo and behold, I go back to UCLA as a head coach. If I hadn't left the Rams in 69 to go to work for Prothrow, they would have never called me up and offered me the job on the phone to come back as the head coach. So it all worked out real well for Dick Vermeil. <laughs> and then later on, you you go on and 
you do do the, you do a wonderful job with the Eagles. To me, looking back in history, just the job you did with the Eagles was outstanding. And then you left the pro game for 15 years, and you, you became one of my favorite college football analysts. So, like, yeah, you were. You were outstanding at your job. But then you come back again. What convinced you to come back and take over a franchise, the Rams, that hadn't been to the playoffs in that entire decade? Well, first off, I never lost my respect and relationship with the Rams, okay? Uh, when Carol Rosenblum bought the team, you know, I was there, and then they fired Prothrow, and he brought in Chuck Knox, and he asked me to stay, okay, and uh, which I was excited. And he said to me one day, you know, young, he said, young man, if you were a little older and had more, a little more experience, I'd make you my head coach today, but I want you to stay with me. And I said, well, thank you. So I was there the one year with Chuck Knox, and I just really enjoyed the experience and learned a lot and saw how, met many new assistant coaches that came there and worked for Chuck and they did a great job. But Chuck was a great leader, a great leader. And you learned a lot about communication with players and coaches and those things from Chuck Knox. And a hard, hard-nosed guy, good practices, uh, uh, you know, and he got, he got the best out of players, a good motivator. And I learned a lot from him. With the, the year I spent with him, gave me confidence when they called me and offered me the UCLA job that I could go there and do it because of my final year of exposure to the NFL with Chuck Knox was so positive. And so then you came, but, you know, years later, you go back to the Rams. Right. Well, I all those years I'm out after the Eagles situation, you know, and mm-hmm. I needed a break. I didn't plan to stay out as long, 14 years like I did. Uh, but I just sort of didn't trust myself. And, uh, but the Rams always offered me the job every time it was open. Oh, they did. I never took it. And, uh, finally it came to me. Uh, I think they tried to hire a few guys that turned it down. And they came to me and asked me if I'd come in and talk to them about it. And I said to myself, well, if I don't do this now at going on 60, if I don't do it now, I'll never, I'll never do it. And no other team would give me the opportunity at that age anyway. <clears throat> because they knew me, I went in and talked with them and accepted the job. Yeah. Now, when I, when I talked to Grant Wistrom, I just talked to him yesterday. He mentioned that there was nothing really, in his view, nothing about the 1998 season that gave any indication that the Rams were about to turn around. Did you see signs of change in that 918 that in 99 things could be better? Oh, yeah. Uh, I saw I saw change in, in 97, 98. And, 90, you know, it doesn't happen in one year. Mm-hmm. You build you build a football team. And there's certain things that happened that allowed it to continue to escalate to the level that escalated in 99. You know, but if you hadn't had the foundation of 98 and uh, 97 or 98, 99 wouldn't have happened. There was a progression, and uh, it just all came together. And, you know, of course, we we get the equivalent of a first-round draft pick, uh, all-pro running back in Marshall Falk, okay? That's a nice addition, okay? <laughs> you look a lot smarter in a running game. You have a, uh, a chance to draft Torrey Holt, who's going to be a Hall of Fame wide receiver one day. Uh, so that's a nice addition. 
You find out that Kurt Warner is a Hall of Fame quarterback, so that's a wonderful addition. You bring in Mike Martz to take over the offense, and he it was time for that offense to be put together in the fashion that only he could put it together, along with the staffs. So I brought in Al Saunders with Mike as the receiver coach, and we worked tremendously with him. I brought John uh, Masco in to be assistant line coach with Jim Hannafin, Dana LaDuke to take over the strength and conditioning program. And I always considered those three coaches equivalent to three first-round picks. So all of a sudden, you know, and the other thing is our work ethic was so great at that time. You know, and uh, they worked so hard for very little return in 97, other than individual improvement fundamentally and, and how each player played the game. Uh, you know, then 98, you add a London Fletcher to the roster that in 99 becomes an all-pro caliber player. He was, Roger, uh, London was probably as a big a contributor to the defense that Kurt Warner was to the offense. So all these things started adding up. And, you know, the, the great job, my personnel department, when you stop and think, that football team that went to the Super Bowl and won it, there are five Hall of Fame players starting on offense. Three of them are already in the Hall of Fame. Isaac Bruce is not yet, but he was in the finals this last year, final, final, finals. And Torrey Holt will be in there following him, okay? Uh, so we, we had gifted talent, but we bought four of those guys there in three years of working personnel. Mm-hmm. So I say Charlie Armour and John Becker did a marvelous job combined working with my coaching staff. And, you know, and we we built a football team by working together in every phase of the department in the in program, you know. Well, one of the kind of more interesting things that, I, again, going back to the, the Wistrom conversation, he also mentioned to me that he was glad the Rams gave you one more year, 90, 90, uh, 99, 90, to weed out some of the players that didn't fit what you wanted. So what were the characteristics that you were looking for in your players? Well, you know, I, I love high character, hardworking people. You know, hard work is not a form of punishment. And sometimes it takes you a while to teach people this, especially in the NFL. When they get there and they've been in the normal kind of training camp and pads once in a while and contact once in a while and all this kind of stuff and shorter practices, because you don't want to wear them out. Uh, and you get into the program that we put in there in 97, just like I did in 1976, the old-fashioned way, full pads all the time, contact every day, and, uh, you know, and tough, disciplined, hard-working practice sessions and long hours, uh, you, you see some you start to see people that don't want to work like that every day. I'm talking about in the season as well. Mm-hmm. You see people that don't get better, they get worse because of their attitude. They really don't want to buy in. And that doesn't make them wrong. They just don't fit. They just don't fit our philosophy. There were nine guys that lined up and played in the Super Bowl that were on our roster under contract when we took it over in 1997. Nine guys. But those nine guys could play and those nine guys could lead and those nine guys could direct the, the culture of a football team, there'll be very few football teams uh, ever that had a stronger bond and belief in each other than those kids did. 
and it's only developed through everybody working hard, not just as the second, third string guy, but the super superstars as well. That's why I brought Frank Grant Wistrom there. I brought Grant Wistrom there because I knew from watching him play in college football as a broadcaster, I knew what I was getting from a consistent character commitment to play hard on every snap. And I just knew it and brought him there in the first round and, uh, and passed up some pretty damn good footballs to bring him, players to bring him there. But I wanted that kind of personality, that kind of character because it's infectious. And he was infectious. And he and he actually mentioned this that very same thing. He mentioned that he knew Coach Vermeil um, wanted him there. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting hearing your perspective on it, just as he gave his. Um, yeah. And so moving on now, going the nineteen ninety nine season, we all know that famous line you gave in the press conference about rallying around Kurt Warner when Trent Green suffered his horrible knee injury. Mm-hmm. Right. What did you realistically expect from the Rams' offense in 1999 after that injury? I, I expect this to I expected us to be uh, strong, maybe upper one third of the league caliber offensive team. I expected us to be a playoff football team. I remember telling President John Shaw, "This is a playoff team," uh, and he said, "Don't tell me that. Every coach has told me that over the past two years. We haven't been there in a long time." <laughs> I said, John, this team is ready to be a play, play, playoff football. I could tell the way they practiced. I can tell the way my coaches coached. I could tell the way they responded in the locker room. I'll bet you this. That was the only football team in the league that never went to a hotel the night before a game and a home game. Okay, that's how much I trusted them, and that's how much we trusted each other. Wow. So. How long did it take you to realize that the Rams are actually serious Super Bowl contenders, not just a one-third, top one-third of the league offense, but serious Super Bowl contenders? I, I would say after the San Francisco football game on October 10th, we were ahead 21 to nothing at the end of the first quarter. Ended up beating them 42 to 20, mm-hmm. a team that had beaten – the St. Louis, the Los Angeles St. Louis Rams combination team, 17 times in a row. Yep. And the and we had beaten Cincinnati Bengals 38 to 10 before that. The Super Bowl team from the year before that, Atlanta Falcons 35 to 7, beat the Ravens in the Oprah. It was a playoff caliber team, 27 to 10. I I, I just knew this is a foot. This is a very fine football team, and I'll tell you exactly. There are two things that really defined that football game. One, after the ball game was over, you know, Bill Walsh was one of my closest friends mm-hmm. in my life. I was outside coaching. And he came in to my press conference after the game. You can look it up. And stuck his head in there with a big smile on his face because he's running the 49ers. He said, guys, this football team's going to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> wow. He was so impressed. With the team. That's what he said. Well, on Monday after that 49er game, I went, our, I always took the first squad meeting on Monday mornings when they all come back. And I told them, I said, guys, you know something? Uh, there's probably only one team in the National Football League that can beat this football team. 
Fortunately for us, they're sitting in this room. That's exactly what I told them word for word. And I said, no, I don't want to read that in a newspaper. I don't want to see it in a TV interview, and I don't want to see it in the radio. But that's who we're going to be because that's what we are capable of being as long as we keep our attitude and character at the level and work ethic as it is today. And and they did. then they went from there and just got it done. Well, outside that Super Bowl victory, what is your best memory from that season? My very best memory from that season, boy, I'll tell you, I, I, I don't know. Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, some of your best memories come from things that happen on a practice field or from a meeting you've had with a player mm-hmm. or a meeting you've had with somebody you really care about within that process as you move along. But probably my strongest memory is the press conference uh, the Monday after losing uh, Trent Green. Uh, you know, and then, you know, I, I was shot. I was beat and everything else. But I still believe we could be a good football team. And as I said, we will play good football. I was very, very sincere in saying that. That's probably I probably remember that as much. I remember that more than anything that entire year. The second thing I remember the most is the, the, the Monday meeting with the squad after the 49er game that I just told you about. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a game standpoint. I I would say, gee, you know, I don't know. I think it it, it grows on you, but uh, you know those you know those first those first six games, we scored 175 points. And the, the other thing, as we we're going through all this, I recognized I recognized how much better our defense was getting. First off, they weren't having to play as much. First off, they were playing from a heads situation, so people couldn't be as well balanced as they would like to be because we're scoring 35, 38, 42, 41, you know, 35. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but our defense was playing so well. You know, the defense, the defense scored uh, seven pass interception returns for touchdowns, you know. We, 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 you know, our offense got a lot of credit and it deserved it. But when our offense was sitting on the bench, we scored, I think, 12 other touchdowns. <laughs> so, you know, it was all, it was together. It was together in the, the like, the leadership that we had from that football team. It just, it, it kept growing, you know. And a lot of them weren't the superstar names. They're the Ray Agnews of the world. Mm-hmm. My, Jones and these kind of kids. Mike Jones gets great accolades because of the tackle he made at the end of the game. He made a much bigger contribution to that season than that one tackle. You know, and, and so that's what it was all about. But any one game, I, I think of that first quarter against the 49ers. You, 21 to nothing in the first quarter. Well, that's there, I have two memories from that year. They're the 4 9 game because they'd beaten us 17 times in a row. And then the first round of the playoff against the Vikings. Right. Because the, the Vikings had I – mean, the Vikings always seemed to have the Rams number. Always. And then to see the Rams put up 49 points on them. And well, they put up 37, if you remember. Didn't they? I, they yeah. did. They, they came back late. <laughs> but, but put up 49 on, on the Vikings like that. And 
I was, you know, it was special because I hadn't seen a, play, a Rams playoff game in 10 years. Yeah. And then, you know, to do it in style the way they did that was, that was a special for me. I, I actually just watched that game the day before the Super Bowl this year. It was, yeah. it was yeah. special. Yeah, it was a very special game, you know, and the, you remember what broke the game wide open, though, is the uh, second half kickoff return. Yeah. Broke it for a touchdown. And, you know, Frank Gans was probably the finest total football coach I have ever been around in my life. At any position, at any level. And the, our special teams contribution, not only from a performance uh, standpoint game day, but Frank's leadership contribution in his meetings to the entire squad. We had offensive linemen going to special teams meetings, but they just want to listen to the meetings. I, I took that week of the Minnesota Viking game, that Saturday before the game, I took John Madden into the special teams meeting Frank Gans puts on. Mm-hmm. John Madden came out of that meeting. You can ask John Madden. You can call him and ask him. John Madden came out of that meeting. He says, that's his final football meeting as I've ever been in my life. He said, can we put a camera in it? If we win it next week and you're going, on, can I put a camera in there and let other people hear? And I said, no. <laughs> but, wow. But the next two games... The opponent scored 22 points. That's that's how we won. Wow. We were a complete football team. We didn't have to prove it very often. You just mentioned the special teams, you know, Frank Gans. And, I mean, I'm sure you're still paying attention to the game today. Yeah. How do you feel today about the diminishing role of special teams like kickoff returns and so on and so forth with the new rules about the kickoff being moved and so on? No, some of those rules don't make the game better. They just try to make it safer. And I don't know if that does or not. I don't have the statistic mm-hmm. or, the or anything like that. I can't tell how many guys got hurt on kickoff return coverage the year before they changed the rule. And a fewer got hurt this year. I really don't. But, uh, I, I, I don't like it, but I, I don't think it hurts the game that much. Uh, but I think placing the ball like they do, and eliminating the kickoff return is eliminating part of the reason the game is at the level it is today because people, that's an exciting football play. Yeah, that's it. Just remember the noise in Minnesota Vikings when we scored that second half mm-hmm. touchdown kickoff return. Holy mackerel. The stadium, I've never, I don't know if I've ever heard a stadium that excited over one play. So over the course of your career, you proved a lot of doubters wrong. And I have to admit, I was a doubter. When the Rams hired you in 97, I was like, man, coach has been out of the game for <laughs> for a long, long time. But you won that Super Bowl in 1999. Your team won that Super Bowl. How did it feel to see Mike Jones make that tackle and ensure a Super Bowl victory? You know, uh, it's a humbling feeling. It really is humbling. And... uh I probably wasn't really as excited as I should have been when we won it because I expected to win it. It wasn't a surprise to me. And and most of my people around me knew that's how I felt. We were a better football team than they. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to win. The best team doesn't always win. That's not an NFL rule. Mm-hmm. I just felt we were a better football team there, and I knew 
how our kids were going to play. And I knew how my coaches were going to coach. It was a lousy way to run a Super Bowl. No buy-in between the game. You win the NFC Championship game the next day in the afternoon. You're on a plane flying to Atlanta. That's not fair. It's not right. But that's we had to do it. And fortunately, we won within that environment. Sometimes I tell myself if we'd had 14 days, maybe I'd have screwed it up. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, it's not fair. So, Coach, help me help me understand something here. Okay, I've seen a couple quotes from you where you you stated that you wanted to spend time away from your family. That's why you retired from the Rams. And there's other rumors out there that maybe the Rams forced you out because of Mike Barch being a hot commodity. No. What really happened? Why did you Why did you retire from the Rams at the peak of your game and the peak of that team success? Well, number one, my family wanted me home. Number two, I got done something that I had dreamt about doing while I was coaching, when I wasn't coaching, and when I went back into coaching. You know, uh, and all of a sudden it's done. Number three, I have a Coach of the Year trophy from 1979 on my shelf at home that I see all the time. And every coach on it had been fired. Tom Landry, all of them, they'd all been fired. And, you know, I just thought, you know, what a wonderful way to be able to, it's like a boxer wins a world championship, go out of his. And so I did that. And I'm, uh, my own emotional stamina is not great. It's not, you know, it's, it's, uh, sometimes it may be a strength, but most of the time it's, I think, a weakness. I just don't have great emotional stamina. I know this. I didn't want to cut the squad in any way. I didn't want to let somebody go that I was going to have to let go because of salary cap. No, I didn't want to get involved in that stuff. Uh, I, that I was so closely connected to those guys. I didn't, I didn't want to go through that. And I actually was prepared mentally to help Mike get a head coaching job outside the, the St. Louis Rams before he ever got the one, before I was ever leaving as we were going along. And I was already prepared to give the job to Al Saunders, who I did when I went to Kansas City. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I was never worried about getting fired. It was never mentioned. I was never reprimanded. Every meeting I had with John Shaw in the offseason, I listened to what he thought I could do better. He listened to what I thought I could do. And we worked together on it. It's little things I tweaked. I think he gained a better understanding what I was all about and how I was going about doing it, you know. Uh, but uh, I just, I never, ever got into that kind of thing. And I, once I did it and I got home, I felt very good. I felt relieved from about, about being out from underneath the constant pressure and the concern for everything that goes on. When we went to the Super Bowl, I mean, when we went to the ring ceremony party, the four seasons in St. Louis, and I started handing out the Super Bowl rings, I recognized that I'd made a mistake. Because it all came to me. I spent three years building this football team, and then give it away. And, and then, I, you know, I felt bad about it. But I didn't think I'd ever go back into coaching. And I wouldn't have, but it hadn't been for uh, Carl Peterson in Kansas City. You know, I, mean, I brought him into the league. He worked for me at UCLA. I brought him into Philadelphia. And he's, he, I could have taken the head job at Kansas City Chiefs when he took it, and I didn't go. So, 
You know, you, it's so easy to create rumors. So easy. Because no one's, no one's held responsible for starting them when they don't know what they're talking about anyway. And that's why you, that's why we go to the man and ask the question. Cause I've just seen so many things. And, you know, years later, and seeing what happened to the team, you know, as the years went on and in all the bad years, the dark years of the late, yeah. the mid to late 2000s. They lost, they ran out of personnel for one reason or another. Somebody was making mistakes in personnel. Or I don't know, but it's a, it has. It can't be one guy. Mm-hmm. It wasn't one guy. Dick Vermeil wasn't the one reason we won. Now I was the leader, and I'm held responsible for it. But our organization worked extremely well together in every phase. In every phase of NFL football team, I don't know if they lost that or what. I know this: they didn't have as good of players after a while. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't. Um, well, just just go evaluate the draft. Uh, you know, and we have. And I can go back to the weird thing was. Yeah, Jesus. The, the weird thing was the 2001 draft with the Rams. They had all these great first round picks, and a lot of them went to fix the defense, and it basically worked for one year. And then a lot of those those players that did well for one year didn't pan out after that. Yeah. And you know, so we. I don't know how that you know how it all works out. And some folks have said I've talked to over the years. Who were there say that you know well, you know the this, that loss to the Patriots really messed with that team mentally. Who knows? But yeah. one thing I do know is that you were there when the team won a Super Bowl, so we're grateful for that. Yeah. And, and years later, Coach, what does it mean to you to have won a Super Bowl as the head coach of the Rams? Well, I appreciate having been given the opportunity to be a leader that contributed to that quality of an organization. It wasn't all about me. It was about us. And I, I really appreciate, I, I see John Shaw every time I go to Southern California, okay? Today, Thanksgiving time, I saw John Shaw, okay? Uh, no, not many people would have hired me at 60 years old at that time. But uh, I just appreciate having had the opportunity to be the leader of that organization. So years later now, and do you still keep track of the Rams and, and those players you coach? Yes, I do. I stay in touch with a lot of them. I hear from them sometimes when they need something or need an interview, uh, a recommendation for an interview or they need this or they need that or they want some advice. I hear from them a lot. Talk to them. I got a text message from Kurt Warner who's sitting here the other night. So, uh, you know, if I'm anywhere close to Springfield, you know, Grant Western is going to see me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Mike Bruder, Dorius Rag news. I, I, and those guys, uh, I talked to, uh, Adam Timmerman the other day called me, okay? So uh, Isaac Bruce's uh, organization uh, organ, uh, sent, sent me an email the other day about a reunion. And Trent Green, who's a, Trent Green's a limited partner in my wine business. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I stay connected. Todd Light, I just did a video for his 50th birthday party. Yeah. So. When we started off the interview today, you talked about you know how you you've retired, but you're still busy. You talked about your wines, your wine company, and so on and so forth. Um, what are you doing today, just to have fun? As you know, 
as an 18-year-old man who's out there living life, what are you doing just to have fun and, and enjoying life? Well, from a from a career stand, having fun for me is I, I, I enjoy being given the opportunity to be a, a guest speaker. You know, for like you know, like I did one uh, last couple few weeks ago for Hewlett Packard. I've got a big one coming up later on, and I enjoy that. It's fun for me to be able to do that. It makes you think. Makes you think as a leader. Uh, makes you organize and think. But uh, fun outside the the house, outside. You know, I, I have grandchildren, eleven of them. I like to hunt. I go to Montana every year. I just I came in today from going deep sea fishing. Uh, I'm down here in Key West for a month and, or six weeks. Uh, my wife and I, our daughter and son-in-law, own a section home down here, and we use it as soon as it gets miserable. In, in, uh, <laughs> uh, the wine business eats up a lot of time, a lot of time. And my name is on the bottle. It's uh, My friends put it together. My friends invested in it. And it's now a very respectable label. It's not without it, not without issues, but it's we have got 11 years of work in it, and it it's, keeps getting better. And, and the credibility of the of the organization keeps growing. We haven't made the playoffs yet, okay? <laughs> but uh, those things all, you know. And then when you, you've been married 63 years, so uh, that should he should uh, utilize some of your retirement time oh one congratulations on that that's so many people don't ever reach well coach just want to thank you so much for your time and and just you know it means a lot to us our site covers has really focuses on the history of the entire franchise going all the way back to 1936 to now and and to get time with you um it means a lot to us is it going well can you make a living doing it I'm trying. I'm kind of like you and Vermeil Wines, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I made the playoffs yet. You know, but um, we I think we have one of the best Rams podcasts out there. I believe I really believe that. I believe um, that uh, we're continuing. How do you make money? How do you make money on advertising? Um, we have people who sponsor the, the, our podcast. Um, we're always looking for sponsors, and we're hoping they can ma- make magic happen. We, we don't want people forgetting the history of this team. I think we're one of the few sites out there that actually focuses. <laughs> the history of the franchise just as much as we do with the current and the present. Well, yeah. Yeah, it, is, it has a great history. Yeah, I, I can remember watching the San Francisco 49ers play the Los Angeles Rams Friday night preseason game in the L.A. Coliseum have 101,000 people in it. John Arnett would be in the running back, okay? I mean, I'd yeah. far back I'd go with him because I lived in California and raised in California. So. Well, I mean, there's so many different things the Rams have been a part of. The desegregation of the game, the horns and the helmets. Yeah. Um, you just mentioned 101,000 people there for a game. I mean, Preseason game. Yeah. <laughs> um, playing in Japan. There's there's so many things this team has been been you know ahead of the game on for for years, and and it gets forgotten. It gets for it got you know all the moves and everything and. I'm proud to I'm proud to cover this team to be honest with you. Yeah, well, great. Um, I'm, you, you can read your. I can feel your sincerity, so I appreciate it. Anytime you want to call me, you have my number. Well, absolutely. And uh, I again, again, thank you so much for taking the time. All right, take care. All right, thank you, Dick. Thank you, thank you so much. Bye. All right, folks. This has been a long show with a couple of really great interviews. Um, before we go, we do want to go ahead and give just this pass it around one more time to the guys. 
Um, years later, okay, it's been 20 years, and this is now really we're entering the 20th anniversary season of that Rams great show on turf, turf team. What do you think is a legacy of that Super Bowl team 20 years later? Steve, I'll start with you. I think it's still one of the most iconic offenses that we've ever had in the NFL. And truthfully, it's probably the, one of the, the unlikeliest Super Bowl championship ever. I mean, the team, it's, it's been said a thousand times, the team's starting quarterback got injured in the final week of the preseason. And his backup, who had never played in the NFL, won MVP and led his team to the Super Bowl. I mean, it's an absolutely just bonker story. As I mentioned before, worst team in the entire decade wins the Super Bowl with the backup quarterback who won MVP. It's you know, We can say all we want about Nick Foles winning a Super Bowl MVP. That was much more likely to happen than Kurt Warner doing what he did in that 99 season and for him to become a Hall of Famer after that. Uh, it's truly incredible, and that team, as iconic as they are now and as fondly as everyone remembers that offense, it's still one of the probably the most unlikely champion the NFL has ever had. Mike? Yeah, I, I truly agree that it was just one of the un, most unlikely scenarios that could have played out over season, you know, and that's why I said something in Dick Vermeil and the staff was able to get all the people and the team and the players on the same page. But one of the things that stands out in my mind is just weapons. I mean, you have Marshall Falk, you have Terry Hull, you have all the receivers, and, you know, you have some great players on defense. And so there were a lot of weapons, and, you know, to be tagged the greatest show on turf, you know, I mean, everybody still knows that team by that, that tagline. So it was just a almost a surprise when it actually played out down the stretch. And I agree with Steve in that it was just like, again, you know, here it is, Kurt Roner, who now Hall of Famer, but became, you know, somewhat of a, a Cinderella quarterback, if you will, you know, leading his team down the stretch. Because throughout that season, there was a number of games that they came back from, uh, and to keep that winning streak going and, and to win and get enough games to get in the playoffs. And then, you know, they were able to finish off with, you know, a tackle right there at the goal line. So, yeah. I just remember weapons. Really a lot of weapons. And, Steve, by the way, 11 passes. That was the number of passes Kurt Warner had thrown prior to the 99 season. Yeah, I figured, I figured it wasn't zero, but I knew it was low. <laughs> 11. Um, you <laughs> yeah. know... Yeah, I, I feel I feel kind of for the LA fans. Just in having talked to many LA fans, that Super Bowl is kind of bittersweet for them because you know of the remarks Georgia Frontier made after the game. You know, I don't need to repeat them. You know, and I also feel now for the St. Louis fans at the same time. This 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 team is kind of that '99 team is is almost bound to be somewhat forgotten. I think down the line, unless we keep their memory alive because, you know, that, that was a different city. And I'm hoping that the Rams organization does a great job of doing what they didn't do with St. Louis. When the team moved to St. Louis, they, they didn't do a very good job of acknowledging the L.A. Rams players. They really didn't. And I'm hoping now 
that they 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 keep bringing back Torrey Holt and they keep bringing back Isaac Bruce and Kurt Warner and they invite Grant Wistrom out there and bring Grant Wistrom back out in the fold. And I hope that happens because that team deserves it. It's not their fault the franchise moved. And, you know, it's, it just deserves that acknowledgement. It was one of the best teams, in my view, that team is one of the best teams in NFL history. They were that good. They were that good. And it's a shame that uh, years later, to me, they're in danger of that memory being forgotten because of where they're located now, just because of the, re- just because of the relocation. It's, just, it's a natural thing. Memories fade when that team isn't there anymore. That's just how I view it. Yep. So, all right. So that's gonna that is how we are going to close up shop our two hundredth episode. I hope you enjoyed both our interviews with Dick Vermeil and Grant Wistrom. I'm sure we're going to hear lots of feedback on the Wistrom interview. There was so much more than just his feelings on St. Louis in there. There's a lot of me and again with Dick Vermeil, he had so many great memories. The guy is like a he's like an elephant. He forgets nothing. So. With all that in mind, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at TalkRams and on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Rams Talk. You can find me on Twitter at DC Apollo, Michael Stewart at 1Do23 and Steve Ribeiro. Also, if you want to sponsor us, we need sponsors, folks. We need, we need partners to work with. Reach out to us at RamsTalk1945 at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 657-666-5453. We have a media kit ready to get out to you. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, all those other places. And don't forget, iebeatradio.com plays our show on Wednesdays, Saturdays, and Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific time. So for Mike, Steve, the entire Rams Talk team, it's Derek C. Paul saying, take it easy and horns up. Go Rams. Go Rams. Of drama. Where else does history hang from the Raptors? Jalen Brown throws it. Down. Where else is your own city? Home to your biggest rival. The battle of LA is real, people. And 30 feet is still in range. Curry, action. Where else can a city this loud be this slept on? Where else is history? Still in the making. Oh my goodness. Where else? The NBA, only here. Season begins December 22nd on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. 
But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.